Chapter Four of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. How Lancashire came into being. Lancashire is, above all other counties, the county of beginnings. The proverb that states the same fact in other words is so hackneyed that we dare not quote it here, but the fact remains. If the statement that the first blood of the civil war was shed in Manchester is disputed, in the words of a contemporary tract, the first stroke that hath been struck and the first bullet that hath been shot, it is at least supported by high historical authority. And be that as it may, it is certain that the siege of Manchester was over weeks before the Battle of Edgehill was begun. Some years before this occurred, the first scientific observation of the transit of Venus had been made in Lancashire by two amateur astronomers whose calculations were thereby strikingly verified when presbyterianism was set up by parliament as the national religion lancashire showed the most complete organization in the country for that system of church government in this one case at any rate the country did not follow suit it was in lancashire that george fox first preached or to use his own expression declared truth and it was there that he formed his first society and founded the church that still bears his initials all the great inventions that revolutionized the arts of spinning and weaving throughout the world with the single exception of the power loom were evolved from the brains of lancashire men and was not calico printing in several colours from rollers now one of the staple industries of the county first practised on the bell parkinson machine at bamberbridge near preston in seventeen eighty five it was on Helton Tarn, through which the little river Winster flows, that the Wilkinsons are said to have floated the model of the first iron boat in the year 1763. The reverberatory puddling furnace, again, was invented by Henry Court, a Lancashire man in 1784. The first dock, the first canal, the first railway, had their birth in Lancashire, and if the first steam hammer was not made in the county, it was because a german copied the design from naismith's scheme book and managed to get one made at creusot first the germ of the factory axe first appeared here did not the system that made such acts necessary arise here also the man who first made possible legislation for public health was born in lancashire it was there that dalton and jewell and rutherford made discoveries that in each case spelt revolution in scientific thought was not the first statistical society founded in lancashire the sunday school movement was nearly first there and possibly had there its most wonderful development a lancashire society shares with one other society the honour of originating the movement for the enfranchisement of women the county was the main arena for the great struggle that terminated in the repeal of the corn laws the cooperative movement was set on foot by lancashire men they have taken the lead in the matter of the provincial universities indeed they narrowly missed having one in the middle of the seventeenth century the county can boast one of the finest colleges of technology in the world and the royal commission of eighteen ninety four pointed out that in manchester the various progressive movements in education had made their earliest start the first repertory theatre opened in england had its home in lancashire if the first great treaty between capital and labour was signed in cheshire it was at any rate a compact between lancashire men and women and terminated a conflict fought out on lancashire soil the statement that the last wolf was killed on humphrey head near grange can hardly be called a beginning 
but at any rate it gives us another superlative in favour of the county, as does the fact that Backbarrow was the last place where charcoal was used for iron smelting. The list might easily be extended right down to the present time, for was there not a Lancashire landing in Gallipoli, when Sir Ian Hamilton, watching through his field-glass what he calls the boldest and most brilliant exploit of all, exclaimed, hardly believing his own words, We are through! And when on May the 16th, 1921, the marble cross commemorating the 55th Lancashire Division's defence of Givenchy in the spring of 1918 was unveiled, a memorial which stands on the very line held by that division against the massed attacks of the Germans, and bears on its base the proud motto of which the division so fully proved itself worthy, they win or die who wear the rose of Lancaster. Marshal Joffre made the striking admission. It was here that the 55th Division gave the first check to the enemy's advance in the great offensive of 1918, and it was from here later that the division went forward to victory. Yet, though Lancashire has mothered so many movements, she was herself late in beginning. Really, she has no right to be called a shire at all. No shire court was ever held here. Even among the counties, she must confess to being one of the youngest. We may go much further back and say that in prehistoric days, Lancashire, as far as our evidence shows, was uninhabited when Paleolithic man was roaming the valleys of what we now call southern England. It is a Neolithic people that is indicated by the remains, and these are mainly flints, that have been found on the hills of the county, principally in the area of which Rochdale is roughly the centre. The prehistoric interments that have come to light would seem to be chiefly of the Bronze Age, and of these a number occur in Lancashire north of the Sands. Earthworks we find in sufficient number and variety, but unfortunately, though these defensive works have been carefully classified in recent years, we have no means of dating them approximately. The finest that I have seen, that are apparently ancient, and they are well worth a visit, are those on Castor Cliff near Colne, perhaps the most striking and remarkably well placed. The earthwork on Buckton Hill near Mossley, also finely situated and well preserved, and the works on the hill above Worsthorn. Of course, we are not here speaking of Norman works, of which there appear to be a number of examples in the county, one of the finest being the mountain court that stand close to the loon at Castlestead, about a mile to the north of the village of Hornby. If we turn now to inquire how Lancashire sprang into being, and how it came to take its name from one of its northern towns, we shall find that even as a district it has not always maintained its entirety. When the Romans came, in the first century of our era, they found it merely part of the territory of the blue-shielded brigants, a fierce, liberty-loving tribe that occupied a large tract of what is now northern England. The Romans found the coastal plain convenient, as we have seen, as an alternative route to the north. For them, it was perhaps little besides. The five stations they founded there, those namely, at Manchester, Wigan, Ribchester, Lancaster and Overborough, the last name being near Kirby Lonsdale, were military posts on main lines of communication. We have no evidence that in Roman times they were anything more. Excavated as some of them have been, they show the normal features of the forts that are threaded along Roman roads over the whole empire. Strategically, perhaps the most important of these was the fort at Manchester, but the remains we possess tell us practically nothing of its history. It is, of course, a happy omen for Manchester 
that the one perfect inscription left her by her roman garrisons after an occupation of some three centuries the very earliest record in the history of the place should be a dedication to fortune the preserver it may not please her tutelary goddess however to know that manchester has allowed this beautiful inscription to be captured by the authorities of the ashmolean museum at oxford other inscriptions tell us the names of the garrison and the officers who superintended the building of the stone rampart a fragment of which is still preserved in situ and many other relics carefully catalogued may be examined at leisure in the queen's park museum it is ribchester however that has yielded the most interesting roman remains found in lancashire notably a massive gold brooch and the beautifully ornamented bronze helmet which occupies a place of honour in the central hall of the british museum and is still perhaps in spite of similar discoveries of more recent date at newstead and nimwegen the finest specimen of its kind found in the empire lancashire must have been the arena for much of the work of the great proconsul agricola both during his experience here as commander of the twentieth legion and later as governor of britain but we have no reference literary or epigraphical that will allow us with certainty to connect his name with a single locality we can picture this part of the country at that time and there is some justification for doing so as a land of uncleared forest of rivers that lost themselves in swamps and morasses a land thick with wet woods and many a beast therein but no certain voice comes from that far distant past unless we choose to apply to this district and here again we may not be far from the truth the description of britain that has come down to us in some graphic passages penned by tacitus who no doubt repeated what his father-in-law agricola had told him where he speaks for example of a land of continual and heavy rain where he tells of exploring the estuaries and forests and again where he voices the complaints of the natives to the effect that their very hands and bodies were worn out in levelling the woods and bridging the marshes for the invaders a cohort of frisian infantry built the roman fort at manchester a wing of sarmatian cavalry held the station on the ribble at ribchester sebusian cavalry seemed to have garrisoned the fort that crowned the hill at lancaster but it is from ribchester that we catch our most vivid glimpses of those far-off times the massive stone capitals to be seen there rudely sculptured as they are give us at any rate an inkling of what the fort must have looked like in its best days while the tombstones are not only striking in their sculpture but give us a fascinating glimpse into the private life of the roman garrison notably the pathetic inscription in which a cavalry officer who had apparently brought his family to face our inhospitable climate and had lost all commemorates an incomparable wife a son most dutiful to his father and a mother-in-law of very dear memory thus the curtain rises for one too brief moment on the joys and sorrows of those who came to the beautiful ribble valley in the first few centuries of our era manchester and ribchester were both occupied as early as the first century and as we stand to-day in the admirable little museum and look at the charred corn that seems to speak of the ultimate firing of the fort and then go out to inspect the actual foundations of the granary itself we may reasonably ask if this very granary may not have been the scene of incidents so graphically described by tacitus in his account of britain only that would involve the assumption that this fort was erected before agricola became proconsul if the britons he tells us had no corn to pay as tribute they were compelled to stand outside the roman granary 
and bid against one another for the corn stored there till the price had reached an absurd figure and then to pay the corn so purchased as tribute the corn never having left the granary at all another profiteering method which tacitus mentions among the abuses which agricola found here was to compel the britons to carry their tribute of corn by difficult by-roads to granaries in remote and inaccessible districts and so induce them to pay a heavy money tribute in lieu of corn the sight of the charred grain may lead us to turn to ask what records lancashire has to show of the race that followed the romans and may very possibly have assisted in the destruction of their fort though indeed the babbling ribble had been one of the greatest sinners in this respect eating away a large portion of the roman bremetanicum so that the sites of the southern and eastern gates must to-day lie beneath its waters the station at lancaster cannot now with certainty be located though by passing through some cottages at the foot of the hill on which the castle stands and climbing a steep garden we may see a fragment called the wherry wall which tradition asserts was part of the rampart of the roman fort there are inscriptions one telling of the rebuilding of the baths and the immediate vicinity has given us clues in the shape of milestones and pottery kilns from the site at overborough on the contrary we have nothing but the record of remains long since lost and while there's no doubt that the fort at wigan crowned the hill on which the church now stands above the river douglas yet the only relic we possess so far as i know is a fragment of an altar cornice and even to see that we must stand on a form and peer over the wardrobe that contains the choir vestments doubtless the roads remain and to a certain extent in use to-day more than that our iron roads have in some cases followed their direction which is all to the credit of the roman engineers there is a consensus of opinion that a number of trunk roads radiated from or shall we say passed through manchester the main route from chester to york going that way another road running to wigan where it was apparently joined by a road from warrington and thence to lancaster in the north another striking direct from manchester to ribchester continuing over longridge fell and on to overborough towards the great wall a remarkably straight piece of this road is still in use and is actually labelled watling street to the north-west of bury passing through affertside where a cross stands upon it which the inhabitants will be sure to tell you is of roman origin from ribchester again there was a connection eastward with elslack and so with ilkley and york but the most remarkable road in lancashire perhaps in the country whether it be ancient or not is the paved causeway that strikes straight over blackstone edge towards halifax a short distance to the north of littleborough from which it may be approached by way of lydgate it is invariably called a roman road though perhaps the only suggestion of its roman origin lies in the correspondence of the gauge of the wheel ruts detected upon it with the gauges measured in pompeii and on the wall of hadrian the causeway has not yet been shown to line up with any of the recognised roman roads in the county so striking is its construction that an engraving of it was selected as the single illustration for the article on the roads of the roman empire in smith's dictionary of the greek and roman antiquities the road with curbs is about eighteen feet wide with perfect ashlar paving the camber is well shown and the peculiar feature consists in a trough either cut or worn in a line of large stones many of which may weigh nearly half a ton that runs down the centre of the causeway i've counted no less than twelve theories suggested to explain this trough 
the most plausible perhaps being that it acted as a guide to a skid or sledge which was used to brake vehicles as they descended the incline which in places is as steep as one in four and a third the practical questions that arise are one are there roads in the vicinity that resemble this causeway two is it likely that our views as to the lie of the roman roads of the district may eventually be revised so as to include the possibility of a road on this line now on the hill immediately opposite an old paved road runs from at any rate the entrance to the summit tunnel over to walston in the deep valley beyond i have examined this reddishore scout gate with some care and in certain features it does strikingly resemble the causeway on blackstone edge another paved road that is grooved i notice between hollingworth lake and syke a careful comparison of these and other roads with the causeway would seem to be desirable as to the second question it is remarkable that the excavators of the roman fort at slack in their report issued in this very year nineteen twenty one conclude by giving reasons for doubting the accepted identification of slack as the cambodunum of the second ita of antonine they are inclined to favour a suggestion thrown out by the late professor haverfield that cambodunum may yet prove to have been located at greetland near halifax now the causeway over blackstone edge makes straight for greetland and passes through it if then future research should fix the site of cambodunum at greetland there would be some justification for the conjecture that the causeway was a roman road leading over the pennines from greetland to some station not yet discovered further than that we cannot go until much careful research has been carried out meanwhile this remarkable causeway crossing the pennines just below where they rise to a grand edge capped by the rocks known as robin hood's bed this causeway whose purpose and history at present remain a perfect mystery should be regarded as one of the lions of lancashire the best account of it yet published is that by the late dr collie march in the first volume of the proceedings of the lancashire and cheshire antiquarian society through lancashire crossing at manchester ran two of the main roman routes from the roman ports in kent and from london to the great wall in the north both will be found to be labelled watling street on the maps along these roads must have passed for centuries drafts of legionary and auxiliary troops arriving from the continent and sent forward to garrison the northern frontier walls as well probably as those troops that were gradually withdrawn from the garrisons in wales when that country was subdued the life of the romans in lancashire as far as we know was a garrison life pure and simple passed for a long time at any rate among hostile hillmen who defied the invaders for at least a century and a half what do we know of these brave hillmen whose fierce struggle for independence was so well known in the society talk of rome that when the roman poet juvenal in his fourteenth satire is picturing a roman father spurring his boy on to try to win distinction he makes the father exclaim destroy the forts of the brigants and so win the honour of bearing the standard we cannot even locate one of their settlements in our county to-day and though tacitus tells us much about them and their fierce unscrupulous queen we have no authority to connect any of his statements with lancashire quite recently the careful digging of mr j wilfrid jackson and his coadjutors in the dog-holes cavern on wharton crag near carnforth has given us the merest glimpse welcome nevertheless of a small section of them 
though the results are not perhaps so sensational as the somewhat similar discoveries made in 1837 at the Victoria Cave across the Yorkshire border. Passing over the occurrence of the remains of extinct British mammals, which seems to date the cave earth back to Pleistocene times, we have in this case unmistakable traces of Neolithic interments, and above these evidence of cave dwellers such as are familiar to students of similar remains in Yorkshire, Derbyshire, Somerset and Devon. Who were these troglodytes of North Lancashire, and when did they live? Mr. Jackson is inclined to accept, in preference to the common view that they were British refugees hiding from the English invader, Professor Haverfield's suggestion that these caves may have been inhabited by freebooters even during the Roman period. Caves may not be comfortable residences, wrote Professor Haverfield, in dealing with similar remains in Derbyshire, but they have been inhabited even in civilised ages. Here, we may think, dwelt some of the poorest and the wildest among the hillmen, living, it may be, largely on robbery. In confirmation of which we may mention the fact that a bronze balance was among the finds at Wharton Crag, which would not be an article of daily use in a cave. The Romans withdrew after a stay of some three centuries in Lancashire, leaving as their roads and the remains of five scattered forts, parts of which we may see today, and leaving as little besides. Of these five Roman stations, two have since become great centres of population, and one has become the county town. The expansion of Wigan must be attributed partly to its position on the coalfield, but a thriving town seems to have sprung up at Wigan independently of this, possibly owing to its position, as we have seen at the crossing of two main Roman roads. We are too prone, perhaps, to think of Wigan as mainly typical of industrial Lancashire, as a centre of the black country, but Wigan can boast beautiful scenery in its vicinity, and an honourable association with some of the principal phases of Lancashire history and tradition. Indeed, as early as the 14th century, the River Douglas, on which Wigan stands, had been identified with four out of the twelve victories attributed to the legendary King Arthur in the history of Nennius, and some have professed to find the sites of all twelve within the limits of our county. Into the merits of such identifications we cannot venture to enter here. The fact that Manchester has become the great distributing centre and capital of the cotton district is partly due, no doubt, to its geographical and strategic position, and it was for this that it will have been selected by the Romans. The selection of Lancaster by a great feudal lord as the site of his castle was also, no doubt, due to strategic considerations, and such considerations probably influenced the Romans, who used the site long centuries before him. At any rate, at the time of the Roman withdrawal, we have no hint of any centres of population except these five forts, and in the last list of forts left us by the Romans, even the name of Manchester is wanting. It had evidently passed out of the military zone. A new invader now appears on the horizon, but the hill country of Cumberland and Lancashire, of Wales and Cornwall, is still stubbornly held by the unconquered Brythons, to use a term somewhat more precise than Britons, banded and welded together under the proud name of Cymri, or comrades, against the hated Alfro, the stranger from over the sea. Two famous battles, driving wedges as it were along the lines of the Severn and the Dee, cut these western Britons into three distinct parts. The Battle of Dereham in 577 severed the Cornish group. The Battle of Chester in 613 cut off the Britons of Lancashire and Cumberland, 
which is of course cymry land and so left the welsh cymry isolated in cambria which is derived from the same word our lancashire was probably for the time included in the northern british kingdom of strathclyde and we are well into the seventh century before we have any definite news of the district by the last quarter of that century the english of northumbria had pressed westwards and settled in the beautiful ribble valley and elsewhere and as we shall see in a later chapter cartmel with all its britons was given to st cuthbert by ecthrith king of northumbria just about the time that monarch had prevailed upon st cuthbert to abandon his hermit life and become bishop of lindisfarne this is the first definite hint of christian influence in lancashire for although the district had already following on its conquest by northumbria passed into the diocese of york and though we have many traditions to the effect that paulinus baptized converts in the ribble as he is also said to have done in the swale at catterick bridge and elsewhere yet our only evidence for this is the vague ascription to paulinus of the famous saxon crosses at Whalley and at burnley we are sometimes inclined to pass by the weathered mutilated stumps called crosses with scant respect we are ill-advised to do so lancashire is proverbially rich in such remains and they were exhaustively studied by the late mr henry taylor any one possessed of a motor and casting about for some object of archaeological research to add interest to excursions might do worse than visit in succession the lancashire crosses that still remain it is to these crosses that we now have to turn if perchance they may throw any light on the history of lancashire in the seventh and eighth centuries for we have no other record for that period though we may draw some inferences from the distribution of place names of course only a small proportion of the lancashire crosses can be assigned to so early a date ancient crosses were erected for various purposes one of the earliest of these would be to provide a site for preaching before churches were erected these occur frequently in the district around some religious house the map of lancashire shows no less than seventy crosses within a radius of ten miles from the penwortham priory close to preston a town that has always been a great ecclesiastical centre churchyard crosses the crosses nearly always to the south of the church form another class there are roadside or weeping crosses market crosses which may indicate the site of ancient moots boundary crosses marking the limits of monastic domains crosses that commemorated the stopping places of famous funeral processions halting places of pilgrims such for example as the cross on holcombe moor already mentioned they gave sanctuary as may have been the case with hyde's cross in manchester they stood at crossroads as did new cross also in manchester and by wells and they were used as guides especially on the high moors and as memorials lancashire abounds in examples of most if not all of these mr taylor's list for the county even allowing for doubtful cases runs to well over four hundred it is with the pre-norman crosses of lancashire however that we are concerned for the moment these have been examined and described by no less an authority than bishop brown who speaks of them as priceless and unique possessions there are few places in england he says to rival wally churchyard in the interest of its sculptured stones and finding nothing in this country to compare to the bold spirals of their carving he turns to the mausoleum of gala placidia at ravenna for a parallel bishop brown's own opinion is that we owe this work to wilfred of york and ripon and hexham 
and we actually have a reference to Lancashire in the life of St. Wilfrid, for in 705 the whole of Amounderness is said to have been given by its Northumbrian lords to the church of St. Peter at Ripon. Examples of pre-Norman sculptured work occur on some dozen sites in the county, the most famous being those at Wally, Haysham, Winwick, Hulton, Lancaster and Hornby. At the last-named site, the loaves and fishes sculpture is considered to be one of the most exquisite fragments of Anglo-Saxon work that have come down to us. How beautiful these crosses must have looked once! Of this we may perhaps form some conception today, for among all the war memorials erected during the last few years, none are more beautiful than the imitations of ancient crosses, and when it was desired to place a monument over Ruskin's grave, the memorial took that form. Unfortunately, it is not yet possible to date the Lancashire crosses exactly. We cannot safely use them as precise evidence at this juncture. They have, however, given definite information in a number of cases as to the existence of early churches. Speaking generally, then, the evidence of crosses and place names, coupled with other proofs, shows that the English settled in the lower districts of Lancashire and along the rivers and estuaries, and it was up these estuaries that the new invaders from Scandinavia swept at the close of the ninth century. Here, place names help us once more. We note the familiar suffix be, for example, showing that the Northmen only colonised the western part of Lancashire, south of the Ribble, but that north of that river they swept right across the county. The curtain now lifts for one brief moment, for a single entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, under the year 923, shows us King Edward the Elder sending a force from Thelwall near Warrington to Manchester to repair and man it. Incidentally, this does not seem to show that Manchester had made much progress since the Romans left it. The next year, Northumbria lay at Edward's feet, and Lancashire, south of the Ribble, note how constantly the Ribble acts as a dividing line, was annexed to Mercia and passed into the Mercian diocese of Lichfield. Edward's conquests were followed up by his son, Athelstan, who drove the invaders northwards, and now tempting evidence of another kind seems to come to our assistance. In the year 1840, a remarkable hoard of silver coins, the number is variously stated as from 7,000 to 10,000, and nearly a thousand ounces of silver ingots were discovered at the Coordale Ford across the Ribble near Preston. The dates of the coins give colour to the guess that the hoard may have represented the treasure chest of a Danish army retreating northwards before Athelstan. The coins were in a leaden chest buried in the bank of the river. It is some years later than this that we find Athelstan giving the wide lands known as a Mounderness, which included what we now call the Fylde, to St Peter's Church at York. For our next picture of Lancashire, we turn to the great survey known as Doomsday Book, but even here the records of some parts of the county are so vague and scant that scholars have seriously doubted whether these districts were surveyed at that time at all. Much, however, may be safely inferred. So far from finding Lancashire a distinct entity at this time, we find the district split into two parts, once more along the line of the Ribble, between Ribble and Mersey, that was the actual name then for Lancashire south of the Ribble, is in Doomsday Book, strange to say, surveyed as part of Cheshire, while northern Lancashire is taken with Yorkshire. Already the southern part was divided into the districts called by the English settlers hundreds, by the Northmen Wapentakes, both names were used here, and these remain as territorial units to the present day. West Derby, Newton, Warrington, Blackburn, Salford, Leyland, 
These appear in the Doomsday Survey as part of Cheshire, though this district between Ribble and Mersey was evidently far more fertile than the land north of the Ribble. Its barrenness and unproductiveness at that time may be judged from the fact that it was valued at £150, while Essex, to take a single other example, was estimated to be worth nearly £5,000. North of the Ribble things are much more vague, and a great part of the land is described as waste. Preston already comes into prominence as one of the chief centres of population. A moundedness appears, including what we call the Fylde, and reaching right back to the Bleasdale Moors. North of this a number of manors are named, stretching right away to the Duddon, but High Furness, as the place names show without doubt, was a sort of hinterland, occupied by Norse settlers, and liable, as indeed Lancashire further south was, to be invaded from time to time by the Scots. See, for instance, to take only one or two examples, how many thwaites there are on the furnace fells, how many becks and gills, and forces and tarns. And now for the first time we come upon Lancaster, and Kirk Lancaster, showing that there was a church there even then, but they are mentioned merely as details of the great manor of Halton. Halton is a mere village now, near the famous Crook of Loon, of which Turner left us a picture, but at the time of Doomsday, it actually overshadowed the future county town. Lancaster, which is spelt Loncastra in Doomsday, is, of course, the castle on the loon. It is merely the English name for the site of the Roman fort. We have no clue to the Roman name of the place. Loon, the name of the river, will certainly be Celtic. This insignificant district or hamlet of the manor of Halton was to give its name in later years to a famous castle, a great county, an honour, a duchy and a line of kings but we have no records of its history from the time of the romans to the date of doomsday here however once more the pre-norman sculptured crosses come to our assistance there being no less than nine represented by remains preserved at lancaster church and in one instance at the british museum two of these have anglian perhaps some would say runic inscriptions but these cannot be discussed here nor can we enter into the vexed question of dates one authority has mentioned as early a date as the 7th century. Lonsdale figures in Doomsday also, but only as a small manor. The wide straggling district which we now divide into Lonsdale north of the Sands and Lonsdale south of the Sands was not recognised as a hundred till three quarters of a century later. We have now at last, so to speak, sighted Lancaster. But to understand how it rose to fame, we have yet to traverse a rather confused and somewhat tedious narrative. Across the story of Lancashire there now flashes meteor-like the figure of a Norman baron, who quite unwittingly had much to do with the welding of the county into one. The right wing at the Battle of Hastings was led by the famous Roger of Montgomery, and he was rewarded by receiving the earldom of Shrewsbury. To his younger son, Count Roger of Poitou, Duke William gave the land between Ribble and Mersey, Amounderness and other possessions. At first, apparently, Lancaster was not included in the gift. Count Roger's castle is mentioned in Doomsday, but we can only conjecture that it was either at Clitheroe or at Penwortham by Preston. The castle at Penwortham is mentioned in Doomsday, but only a trace of it remains now, on a small hill about a hundred feet above the river. Clitheroe Castle is not named in the survey, but its Norman keep, peeping between the trees from the summit of the bold limestone rock on which it stands, is a picturesque object in the landscape for many miles round, 
silhouetted now against one hill now against another always with striking effect by the time the doomsday survey was made however roger had forfeited his estate which was once more in william's hands when rufus became king he gave it back to roger with added lands so that eventually count roger of poitou ruled with the power if not the name of a palatine earl over the greater part of what we now call lancashire it was then that he fixed upon the hill at lancaster where the romans had built their fort as the most suitable place for his castle probably because of its strategical position as a defence against attacks from the north from this fact his possessions which included lands in other counties took the name of the estate or honour of lancaster one other thing worth mentioning we owe to count roger he separated the manor of manchester from the manor of salford though salford still remained in the parish of manchester thus as professor tate has very aptly said a stroke of a norman baron's pen divorced manchester and salford in all but their devotions and what he sundered no one has been able to bring together again having thus as we have shown quite unwittingly assisted in creating the entity which we call lancashire and given it its name roger the poitevin disappears from history by a curious rule of norman feudal law the honour and the name remained but there were troublous days ahead in the course of which lancashire was once more torn in two we need not wonder if the division is again along the line of the ribble if we remember that in those days there were few bridges and if we call to mind what an important part rivers played in the last great war after roger came the earl of chester then stephen then stephen's son william before stephen's death lancashire north of the ribble was in the hands of david king of scotland then the estates passed to john who forfeited them as the result of his treachery at length in the pipe rolls of eleven sixty eight we come upon the term comitatus de lancastria the county of lancaster yet more than ten years after this when england was divided into judicial districts our new county is still regarded as consisting of twixt ribble and mersey and lancaster by eleven ninety four the name lancastershire appears by the antiquary leland professor tate however has pointed out that the form lancashire does occur once about a century earlier in the paston letters a century and a half later than the date when the name of the county had crystallized into lancastershire a famous warrior grandson of king henry the third became first earl and then duke of lancaster and by thirteen fifty one edward the third had honoured him still further by raising lancashire to the dignity of a county palatine the circumstances are peculiar in former times it had been considered advisable for practical reasons of defence to confer what were called palatinate powers on border counties that is to give to those in charge of them authority which was usually exercised by the king alone already as we have seen as far back as the time of count roger lancashire had been for practical purposes a palatinate in all but the name now henry duke of lancaster became virtually king in his own domain he had his own chancellor and judges the case is peculiar because these rights were now conferred not as formally for reasons of defence but merely in recognition of the position and distinguished service of the then duke of lancaster we have to go one step further in thirteen ninety nine henry bolingbroke who was already duke of lancaster became king of england as the duke of lancaster was ex officio lord of the manor of salford henry the fourth would hold that position also ever since thirteen ninety nine therefore 
The King of England has been Duke of Lancaster and Lord of the Manor of Salford. When some years ago George V visited Salford, he requested that in future the toast of his health should be given under these titles. The Palatine Duchy of Lancaster, which, as we have seen, was created in 1351, still exists, though in judicature only its Chancery Court remains. As in the case of the Duchy of Cornwall, which was created in the same reign, its revenues are kept distinct and its accounts are published separately. The position of Chancellor is given to a member of the government of the day and generally carries with it a seat in the cabinet. Now it may be very reasonably asked why it should have been necessary to wade through all this tedious detail before we could distinguish Lancashire as an individual entity and give it its name. The reason is not difficult to see. The district now called Lancashire was for centuries a border country, exposed to attack from the north and serving to a certain extent as a buffer state. It is in a sense isolated by its position and by its eastern mountain barrier. The character of its coast makes it peculiarly vulnerable to attack on the west. Much of its surface is wild hill country and this was much wilder ten centuries ago. These circumstances combined gave a somewhat troubled character to its early struggle for existence. Having now attended the birth and christening of our county, and seen it raised to palatine rank, we may pass more lightly over its subsequent history. End of chapter 4